You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Steed Sellers, a senior writer at the Washington Post. Today, we're going to take another step towards explaining America by taking a look at the history and cultural context of today's polarizing debate around abortion with Mary Ziegler, a legal historian at UC Davis School of Law. Mary Ziegler, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you for having me. Well, we're delighted to have you. And I want to start by asking you about the big picture here. The goal is to explain America to audiences overseas and in the United States. And I'm wondering, is America moving in the opposite direction from other liberal democracies and advanced economies around the world when it comes to abortion? For the most part, yes. So this was a, a hot a flashpoint in debate before the Supreme Court overturned Roe. Uh, conservatives argued that many uh, nations in Europe had restrictions or bans on abortion later in pregnancy, so sometime between the 12th and 15th week, uh, and argued that the United States, uh, with Roe v. Wade as the law, was an outlier. Um, that was, I think, uh, an oversimplification in many ways, because those nations also, for example, allowed funding for abortion. But the U.S. is an outlier, I think, in the sense both that it's moving away from protection for abortion rights in the sense that it has sweeping bans in um, over a dozen states with more likely to come online later. Uh, and of course, it's exceptional in the degree of polarization that surrounds the abortion issue as well. So let's talk a little bit more about Ireland, which you raised in the introductory video. Um, to what extent is the example here instructive as we think about what may lie ahead in the near future and the more distant future in the United States? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's obviously there's some similarities or parallels we might imagine. I think we've seen in the United States already uh, polling from a number of different uh, groups, including uh, Pew, Marist, uh, NPR and PBS NewsHour, suggesting that in places where people have real world experiences of abortion bans, in, in other words, places where people hear the stories of those who've experienced abortion or abortion bans, opinion changes. And that was very much the experience of Ireland in the campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment. There are discontinuities as well. There's no obvious path to a nationwide referendum on Ireland, although we have seen uh, that direct democracy, that taking the question of abortion directly to voters can be a helpful way potentially to de-escalate conflict or also really to see what voters want. If you can get voters to separate their partisan identities from what they, they feel about abortion, we often get surprising answers. We've seen in six of six ballot initiatives so far, abortion rights have won in places where um, Democrats fared well, but also in places where Republicans fared well. So there's some similarities and some differences. We won't have a kind of repeal the eighth campaign necessarily in exactly the same way, but I think there's still lessons to be learned. So another question about countries overseas. I was traveling recently and hearing from um, people in Britain about a late case uh, of a woman taking uh, mifepristone late in her pregnancy. And a kind of really sort of interesting polarized debate evolving that. Um, do you think America's polarization around this issue is causing other countries to have um, open battles over what might have seemed to be a settled issue? In a way, I mean, there's certainly both the pro-life and pro-choice movements have international arms. So the, the movements that you see active in the United States are in no way interested in keeping this within the United States. That's been true for decades when it comes to organizations like Human Life International. And we've also seen, I think, in some ways that the success 
um, of the American pro-life movement depended in part, I think, on gaining influence in the federal courts and gaining influence in a major political party. Uh, and we've seen, I think, that model um, spark interest in Brazil, for example, um, in Poland. And so I think that the factors that make the U.S. polarization so unique are hard to replicate elsewhere. But there are, I think, specific features of U.S. politics that we are seeing um, appear in other countries across the world and that have led to more polarization. I wouldn't expect to see that happen in Britain in the near term, but um, I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. Uh, and I, I, we're already seeing it in other parts of the world. So take us back a couple of years when Roe was still law of the land. How did the U.S. compare to other countries in terms of access? Well, the, the U.S. had a kind of complicated regime when Roe was the law, because on the one hand, uh, the idea of a right to abortion um, struck some commentators in Europe, especially the kind of right to abortion that Roe recognized, um, as unusually expansive. But access on the ground didn't match the terms of what people thought Roe stood for, in part because Roe itself was no longer the law after 1992. A decision called Planned Parenthood versus Casey was, which allowed states to introduce regulations on abortion so long as they were not unduly burdensome. And if you stop and pause here and wonder what unduly burdensome means, you're not alone because that was a remarkably difficult to understand term. And that meant there was already a patchwork when it came to access in the United States, especially for uh, low income people. Um, often that meant people of color, younger people and rural people. Um, the United States has prohibited uh, reimbursement under the federal Medicaid program for most abortions since the 1970s, which of course limited access. And states, the same states that now, for the most part, um, either have bans that are being enjoined by courts or bans that are in force, uh, introduced a lot of more incremental restrictions that limited access already. So the patchwork so, with which we've become familiar was already developing when Roe was on the books. And is it unique? Is there anywhere else that is this kind of patchwork state by state response? Well, there, there definitely are nations that have a kind of federalist approach to abortion. Australia comes to mind, um, although there's been a kind of coalescing around support for um, abortion rights uh, across Australia in recent years, so that there isn't a direct a parallel. Um, but uh, the, the, in, so in that sense, I think the U.S. is unique and it's moving. It, it's becoming even more unique. Right. So you're starting to see states move further apart progressive states introduce more expansive laws protecting access to abortion, uh, conservative states experimenting with laws limiting travel to other states for abortion. Uh, so it, to the extent the U.S. is an outlier in terms of the degree of conflict, um, uh, that seems to be intensifying uh, in the post-Dobbs era. So, so just for a minute, in your opinion, is abortion a driver of this polarization or a consequence of it? or something different that is, is more subtle than either of those two uh, responses? It's, it's, sort of, it's a little bit of both. Um, I think polarization is often a driver of, of uh, extreme positions on abortion than vice versa. We've seen, I think, a fairly um, stable consensus on public opinion on abortion in the United States, which isn't so different from what you see elsewhere in the world. There's been broad support for a right to abortion, um, particularly broad support for access to abortion in the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. Um, the U.S. has also been supportive generally of restrictions on abortion that are not um, as sweeping as bans. And so I think on the one hand, that doesn't appear to be an engine of polarization, right? It appears to be something that would produce consensus. But because the United States is so deeply divided by partisanship, by region, 
um, that's fueled, uh, I think, more extreme laws because there are any number of states that are not politically competitive. Um, there are even city governments that are politically uncompetitive that have become uh, kind of laboratories for different kinds of abortion legislation, in part because legislators have no fear that they'll face political consequences for introducing laws. So that, I think, is more abortion being our abortion politics being the product of our polarization rather than the driver of our polarization, although there's certainly um, committed single issue voters um, who have a, a say in that as well when it comes to the abortion issue. So, so let's take a step back half a century, a little bit more, and you can maybe help us understand the legal and political dynamics at play then when Roe became law of the land. What led up to that? Yeah, it was a very different United States. So we've already spent some time talking about uh, political party dynamics uh, regarding abortion in the United States. Anyone who knows has even a passing knowledge would say the Republican Party is the pro-life or anti-abortion party. The uh, Democratic Party is the pro-choice or abortion rights party. Um, that would have been, if you traveled to the 1970s, an incoherent statement to make. Neither party had a consistent position on abortion. There were prominent politicians in both parties who took diverging views. Um, and that meant in many ways that things didn't operate the way they do now. You couldn't run a race as a, or people rarely ran races um, as pro-life or pro-choice candidates. Public opinion on abortion, on the other hand, would have looked very familiar. Um, there were polls from the months immediately preceding Roe suggesting that somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of Americans or in the high 50s believed that abortion should be a decision between a patient and a doctor. You'll still see polls like that emerging um, today. Uh, and I think the fact that abortion wasn't a partisan issue was evident in the way the Supreme Court treated it as well. Roe was a seven to two decision. Um, many of the justices who were in that seven justice majority were nominated by Republicans, including um, Harry Blackman, who was the author of Roe. Uh, and there would have been nothing surprising or unusual about that. Having said that, there was already a robust abortion conflict in the United States. Roe v. Wade did not create the abortion conflict um, it's in it, even to the extent if we're asking, did it intensify it? Even the answer to that, I think, is complicated. There had already been a state by state battle um, as to whether states were going to reform their 19th century criminal abortion laws, repeal them um, or just leave them alone. Uh, that had kind of reached somewhat of a stalemate. Um, it was not the case, uh, in my opinion, that the pro-choice side was clearly winning. Uh, for example, in 1972, New York, the New York legislature, New York being one of the most liberal states on abortion, was ready to reinstate its criminal abortion restrictions before then Republican Governor Nelson Rockefeller vetoed that law. So the politics were complicated, but they were already heated, and the same was true of the battle in the courts. So Roe was a game changer, but it was not uh, the sort of the start of the conflict. It was rather kind of a turning point in a much longer story. So uh, this is just fascinating, but it was a game changer. So how did it change that game immediately afterwards? What, what, what happened? I mean, did it then lead to polarization right away or is it a much slower process? It was a more gradual process. So um, it, it meet in the 1970s, so the first Supreme Court justice to be nominated after Roe was John Paul Stevens, and he faced a grand total of zero questions about Roe and abortion and was confirmed unanimously. Uh, in the 1976 presidential election, neither major candidate took a 
very coherent position on abortion. They both tried to stake out kind of middle ground positions. So for example, uh, Gerald Ford said he was not for abortion on demand, but stated that he might be for abortion under other circumstances like rape or incest or health threats to health. And Jimmy Carter, who was a Democrat, suggested he too was opposed to abortion on demand, although he thought Roe was the law of the land. He opposed Medicaid reimbursement uh, for abortion and promoted what he called alternatives to abortion, like adoption. So neither party really sounded much like the ones we've grown accustomed to. The polarization really came later, um, and it had to do with factors well beyond the Supreme Court's decision. Uh, and I think that's true today, too. If you're trying to understand the polarization in the United States, it, it feels good and easy and convenient to say it was Roe v. Wade. And I think that's what the Supreme Court said last year when the Supreme Court overruled Roe. And the, the reason that's comforting, of course, is if you believe that then and you remove Roe, then all of a sudden you can believe the polarization will go away, whereas I think the polarization is more complicated. I think it's possible to imagine an America that's far less polarized, in part because on public opinion basis, we're not polarized, right? We're polarized in terms of law and in terms of politics, but probably not in terms of what we actually believe and prefer. But the politics, the, the drivers of the polarization haven't been removed by the elimination of Roe. So I can't think about the early 70s in the United States without thinking about um, the, the evolution of the NRA as a political organization rather than a, a, a hunting bipartisan hunting group. Do you see that as part of the same sorts of trends in that era? Yeah, I mean, there was definitely an evolution in the way social movement organizations evolved. And I think there are parallels to the NRA and many of the kind of leading organizations um, in what would become uh, an increasingly kind of fractured and co complicated and sophisticated pro-life movement. So you began, for example, to see uh, pro-life groups becoming more adept in um, campaign strategies, in understanding the rules of campaign finance. And ultimately, I think, as you see with the NRA, in, in mastering political strategies that only tangentially have to do with the substantive issue at hand, whether that's guns or abortion. So you began to see over time um, anti-abortion groups uh, working to challenge regulations like campaign finance reform or becoming actively engaged in rules governing access to the ballot and voting rights. Um, and you, I think you very much see a parallel with what's going on with the national uh, right, the NRA in, the, in similar terms. And of course, at various points in the history, the NRA worked with um, anti-abortion groups to advance its goals, particularly in terms of gaining influence for movement organizations in the broader GOP. So you're leading me right into my next question, which is really about what the abortion debate, how it encapsulated these other ideas. You know, voting rights, campaign finance, you write about that in your book. Tell me a little bit about how you drew all those different and seemingly unrelated uh, ideas and fears together. Yeah, well, I mean, it really starts, if you're a historian, your, your material does a lot of work for you. So I'd been a historian of the abortion debate for years, and I kept seeing all of these memos and emails and meeting minutes discussing campaign finance and voting rights. And I thought, particularly, the campaign finance piece was was odd, to be honest, at first, because it, notwithstanding the fact that there are now very financially well-off groups opposed to abortion, like the Alliance um, defending freedom and some somewhat smaller groups like Students for Life, 
these are not groups that are going to compete with the Koch brothers, right? These are not groups that you would think would profit the most from a completely deregulated campaign finance system. And so uh, it starts, I think, often with kind of a mystery in that sense, right? I wanted to understand why these groups were involved and why they saw these as interrelated issues. And of course, I think it, it came down to the fact that there are intricate connections between abortion and lots of issues related to how, how healthy the democracy is, um, because the movements involved in the abortion debate believe that they are advocating for fundamental rights. I think that's true of conservatives as well as progressives. Um, we've seen some conservatives now saying essentially these are issues that transcend majority rule. Um, and that means that changing the ground rules of how the majority makes itself heard, whether that comes to election spending or voting, um, may be necessary to protect what we see as this transcendent constitutional value. So it, it, once I understood it, it sort of made sense. But I think it started with just encountering these weird connections, you know, in the wild, if you will, right, in the historical record and then trying to make sense of them. So I'm going to ask you more about campaign finance in a moment, but but you've referenced um, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, 1992, um, and I thank you for not talking too much about undue burden when we when I ask you this. But how did it change the trajectory of the abortion battles? Well, it, it in a few different ways. So the undue burden test first made it easier for states to regulate abortion. Um, which began to open a tremendous divide between what you would consider red and blue America or conservative and progressive states. Um, it also, I think, changed the terms of the struggle to an extent because the undue burden test invited people involved in both political and constitutional conflict to talk not about um, entirely about who had rights, right? Because we haven't talked about this yet, but the, the anti-abortion side was arguing not just that there was no right to abortion, but that there were affirmative rights for the fetus or unborn child, rights to equal treatment, rights to, to life. Um, so the undue burden test sort of shifted the conversation away from these rights and toward questions about what are the real world effects of abortion laws? And relatedly, what are the real world effects of abortion? So anti-abortion groups, began investing much more in claims about what they saw as the harm abortion did to women, right? So um, founding their own research organizations, publishing their own studies, making claims that were um, often not supported, uh, that abortion caused breast cancer, or at least increased the risk of breast cancer, um, that abortion caused something akin to post-traumatic stress disorder. So it, it opened a divide, I think, in many ways about the reality of abortion in America that, that deepened the polarization, because Americans were even more um, out of step with one another when it came to the basic facts of what was going on, in addition to the sort of moral or constitutional questions about what they wanted the world to look like. Right. So... Mary, we've had a, a number of audience questions, and I'd love to ask one right now. It comes from Judith Stern in California, and Judith Stern asks, how can originalism be the determining legal foundation regarding women's rights when women were not referenced or included in the original constitution? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think one of the initial sort of, I'm not sure originalism was the premise, right? The Supreme Court in Dobbs said that it was looking at history and tradition and legal scholars have debated whether that's originalism at all, right? It's not exactly hmm. what we usually think of as originalism. It's, they were talking about unbroken traditions. Um, but I think it is fair to ask because of course the Dobbs majority was looking at a time um, when 
uh, when states were criminalizing abortion, when the 14th Amendment was ratified, when women couldn't practice law, when women couldn't vote, um, and when the kind of prevailing culture around abortion bans, and particularly the federal anti-vice law known as the Comstock Act, is centered on women's sexual purity, right? So it's, it is, I think, striking that the court was relying on a period of history um, where women were thought of so differently. Um, I am, a, as a historian, um, in full disclosure, I'm skeptical of methods of constitutional interpretation that claim that history offers clear answers because historians spend most of their career saying things like it's complicated or it's messy or there's nuance. And so if history were an input-output machine like an ATM, my job would be a lot easier. But I think often history resists those kinds of easy answers. So originalism as, as a kind of really great tool for divining what our abortion laws should look like, I'm skeptical of in the first instance. So let's get back to camp campaign finance and how the pro-life movement linked them up with that issue, linked themselves up with that issue. Yeah, so after Casey, the pro-life movement's primary, I think, strategy to reverse Roe to that point had been to get Republicans elected because the, the Republican Party and the pro-life movement had forged a partnership in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And the theory was that if Republicans controlled the Senate and controlled the White House, they would confirm justices who believed that Roe was an activist decision and wrongly decided. But it turned out that that wasn't true, of course, because the Casey uh, majority um, retained what the plurality opinion called the essential holding of Roe. And so for leaders of the pro-life movement, this meant that more needed to be done to gain influence in the GOP. And campaign finance struck leaders of the movement as one of the promising ways to gain that influence um, by, for example, helping Republicans win, certainly by outraising and outspending the opposition, but also by kind of changing the balance of spending within the party um, to give more of a say to organizations like the NRA, um, or Students for Life or the National Right to Life Committee, um, and relatively less of a say to the kind of traditional committeemen and party leaders who prioritized electability over kind of purity on single issues. So that brought pro-life groups into major struggles around campaign finance in Congress. Um, it led them to take a central role in litigating major campaign finance cases that reached the Supreme Court, including the one people have probably heard of, the Citizens United case. Um, and to be involved even today in, in struggles over what we often think of as dark money because of the belief that many people in the pro-life movement had that there would be a backlash to donors in blue cities or blue states who opposed abortion and opened their wallets to contribute to um, pro-life causes. So the, the connections are not just historic, I think in many ways they're ongoing. And a growing alliance between pro-life and pro-business elements of the GOP, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I think that there's been um, there's been a kind of marriage between obviously the coalition that opposes campaign finance includes includes pro business conservatives as well as social conservatives. That's utterly unsurprising. You would expect pro business conservatives to be anxious about some forms of campaign finance reform. Um, but the people who are currently on the Supreme Court, we often think of as being um, sympathetic to both kinds of causes. So. Mary, in the stories I've written about abortion in the past few years, um, I have been struck, I've learned an awful lot about what abortion is, uh, when it is used, and I thought I was fairly educated about some of the things, these things. To what extent do you think this has become a purely political issue rather than understanding of uh, what abortion involves and who has abortions? Yeah, I mean, I think we're starting to see that change because um, as people in states, with bans, 
have complications in pregnancy, like miscarriages or stillbirths or other issues, um, and they go in to see if they can get treatment, they're beginning to see doctors process where the line is between abortion and other forms of care. Um, and they're beginning to realize that people they knew um, or know who are seeking abortions are seeking abortions because it's much more of a trial now in many states for people to get abortions. And we're likely to see that effect amplified um, as uh, some of the last remaining states that don't have bans across the American South begin enforcing those bans. Uh, so I think there's been, um, on the one hand, we've seen polling saying fewer people claim to know someone who's had an abortion because people are beginning to um, I think, worry about collateral criminal consequences to people who know them. But I think the reality of what abortion is, who has an abortion, um, and how at times abortion intersects with access to care for people who are not seeking abortion, including people with wanted pregnancies, including potentially down the road, people seeking treatment for infertility. I think a lot of that has been brought into the open after Dobbs in ways that might not have been the case before. Mary, it's not really fair to ask a historian to look ahead, but I'm going to do it anyway. Where do you see this leading? I mean, we have this intensely divided country at the moment, uh, intense political divisions. Do you see a, the abor abortion as a topic that will continue to divide or? In or the short term, yes, I do see it as a topic that will continue to divide. We've seen a kind of ironic dynamic develop in 2023, which is that there's been um, if you looked historically, right, you would see people who supported abortion rights relying on the courts to safeguard um, what they saw as crucial forms of liberty and equality. And you would see people who are opposed to abortion complaining and saying this should be an effort, this should be an issue left to the states, left to the voters. And now it's almost as if the roles have been reversed, where you see people who support abortion rights trying to go directly to voters. And you see people who are opposed to abortion rights turning once again to the federal courts, either asking the federal courts to withdraw approval of the drug Mifepristone, for example, or revive the 19th century Comstock Act. And so the, the, I think the ongoing role of the federal courts, um, or at least the potential role, uh, is definitely a fly in the ointment um, in the sense that people are, um, it, to the extent people are allowed to express their views, on what many believe is a fundamental liberty, they're not even being able to uh, express their views if the federal courts are going to intervene um, and institute some kind um, of nationwide policy. I think there's also likely to be tension when you have um, an outcome like the one in Dobbs that's at odds with what a majority of Americans believe. History would tell us, you know, when the court is out of step with popular opinion in a significant way, that's not something that's likely to be um, stable in the long term. And I think that's likely to be true of Dobbs too. But to the extent there's any kind of hope for a de-escalation of conflict, we see it in the fact that there is still a fairly clear majority opinion on, among Americans about where they would like abortion policy to go. And that's not true on a lot of other issues, right? America is a very divided country. The fact that you can get 59 or 60% of Americans to agree on something is remarkable, right? And that shows you, I think, that there's a potential path away from polarization on abortion. It'll just take, I think, changes to our politics to make that possible. Wow, a potential path away from polarization. Mary Ziegler, thank you so much for joining us at Washington Post Live today. That was fascinating. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.